the news with my dad. The show where we talk about the news with my dad. And on the phone, coming at you live, playing the role of my dad is in fact my dad, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Pop, how you doing? I'm just wondering how much damage somebody can do in 48 days. Well, one thing we know is that he is willing to purge much of the civil service worker population in Washington, D.C. We will talk about that and more, and I think you understand when we say he. You can probably guess who we're talking about, but Pop, this is a show we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff. When it's unimportant, we try to say so. We take turns. Dad typically takes the first turn. Pop, do you have a shout-out? I have two shout-outs. First, I want a shout-out for Gabriel Sterling. Gabriel Sterling, Georgia election officer, committed Republican, voted Republican twice, he says, who had the courage, had the guts to go on national television and speak out against the awful rhetoric that is being spewed out by DDT and his myrmidons, pointing out that what they are doing is causing far-right nuts to seriously consider doing really, really bad stuff. I have to confess, I wonder if Fox even carried Mr. Sterling's statement that uh, the 35% of the folks who think that DDT walks on water, and by the way, for those who haven't been listening before, DDT, the middle D is Donald. The last it's going to catch on, Pop. It's in any minute now. It's going to catch on. Another shout-out is for Katie Porter, who took on with the five minutes that she had yesterday on Steve Mnuchin and made Steve Mnuchin look like an idiot. So I shout out for Katie. And then before we dive into the news, just want to acknowledge the passing of Rayford Johnson, the great athlete, died at age 86. Well, Bob, where do you want to start today? I think we should start with the COVID. I think we should never let up on the COVID because it's, there's so much still going on with the COVID. Yeah, what we know is we had another huge day uh, yesterday, another Over large day. hundred deaths. And uh, in, in the United States, yeah, we're for a long time we we're doing about a thousand a day, a thousand deaths. We, we a day were in down, we were down eight hundred for a little while. And now we passed twenty five hundred deaths in a day. And imagine to think about the scale of that. Remember how many people died in nine eleven, and what a what an act of uh, what kind of conduct that led every to by day, this nation. Every day, more than a nine eleven. That the militarization in the Middle East, that the uh, transformation or at least uh, amplification of certain American rhetoric, uh, the uh, meaningful change in American culture based on that number of deaths. And right now we're having deaths that we are inflicting upon ourselves. And that is not to put any blame on somebody who gets a disease. People get diseases. But yeah, Dad, in the NBA, they had almost 10%. I think it was 8% of NBA players have tested positive for COVID. Uh, yeah, it was what forty-eight. It was at forty-eight athletes out of out of five hundred and fifty athletes or so. NBA players all tested positive, which I find it, I've been speculating. I haven't read anything really good speculating why the rate there is higher than otherwise. Uh, well, there's, there's an awful lot of physical contact, and there's not a great deal. Of, you, you can't guard somebody six feet away. Uh, yeah, you, oh, so you think it's you think it's intra-team. You think it's within scrimmages. You think it's within oh, yeah. within practice. That's why it's happening. Yeah. One person on team gets it, and that means that there are and three then, people. And, get it. The, and then they're all gr- they're all great athletes, and great athletes tend to think of themselves as as indestructible. The, so that has it. The fact that they are great athletes probably. Very few, if any of them, will get really sick. Oh, that's something to keep our eye on. Uh, Dad, what's next? Well, on COVID, the United Kingdom has approved the Pfizer vaccine, and there's talk that the FDA may approve both the Pfizer and Moderna by the middle of this month. We'll see. I think it's really, really important 
that the FDA not allow any impression that they were hurried, because if there is appearance that they were hurried, it could significantly affect the number of people who are willing to take the vaccines. And the experts generally agree that for the vaccine to work in really turning things around so that we can get back to living our lives more normally, at least at least 70 percent and maybe a little more than 70 percent of folks need to be vaccined and one of the real concerns usually say vaccinated say again usually say vaccinated rather than vaccine but go ahead yeah to get vaccinated right and the uh, the experts all pretty much agree except for mr atlas who has gone back home. Thank heavens he's gone back home. I wonder what kind of reception he'll receive from his peers at Stanford. But anyhow, the experts pretty much agree that it is going to get worse before it gets better. There's serious talk that it could go go up to about as 4,000 per day, particularly a fear that because people now hear the vaccine is coming, you think, oh, well, we can, we can relax now and they'll take off their masks and they'll move closer than six feet and they'll stop washing their hands. Please, folks, please, folks, do not do that. Washington State of has approved, created an app for COVID alert. Apparently, I don't know exactly how that works. We maybe get get somebody, but however it works, more than 200,000 people have already signed up for it which is impressive. For those those folks who might be interested in being guinea pigs, OHSU is looking for volunteers for an AstraZeneca, however it's pronounced, trial, uh, a treatment for it, and very much connected to the COVID is the proposal by six senators, three Democrats and three Republicans, for a 900-plus billion relief bill. And Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi have said, hey, this is a good place to begin. The question will see whether or not Mitch McConnell is willing to see it as a place to begin or anything to see it begin. But that is something to keep our eye on, and that is something that is really needed because the relief that was granted by the big big relief bill passed before is running out. The limitations on on evictions running out. The, people are really, 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 really hurting. I wonder, I wonder if you have any thoughts on what do you think the chances is going to happen before Christmas? I don't know, but I do want to offer some COVID story uh, that is here that has been prepared. Britain has become the first country in the world to authorize Pfizer's COVID vaccine. Wednesday, they announced they'd okayed that vaccine. 800,000 doses are going to be delivered from Belgium for distribution. Two doses are required at a three-week interval for it to be effective. The FDA is not scheduled to make a decision until December 10th because of extremely limited supply. The first round is going to go to the most at-risk populations in Britain, such as the elderly. There is a question. I wonder if people have opinions on who you think should be the first priority. Now, here are, of course, it'd be nice if everything could be the first priority, but that violates what the word priority means. There have been a couple arguments. One of the populations that are the most at risk of uh, being damaged by it if they get it. Another is the people who are most at risk of getting it, at period. A third is, might we might call them high-value targets. People who are both at risk of getting it and at risk of delivering it. But more importantly, I shouldn't say more importantly, I'm going to say more accurately, I think, uh, because actually the rate of contraction in emergency rooms is very low, but where people just feel that the stakes are high so the healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed. So to be more clear about those three categories, the first would essentially be like elderly people and, and sick people and people in nursing homes. Okay, that's one argument for first priority. Second our argument for the second argument for first priority are people who are frontline workers, people who work in uh, food packing plants, etc, places that have had in the neighborhoods that have had significantly higher rates of contraction. And the third is essentially like healthcare workers. 
I think all are three good arguments. And I don't know if you have a preference. And of course, if you make enough doses, you can cover all three. But you can't won't be able to cover all three on you know week one. And I don't know if you have an opinion on that. Yeah, it's a tentative opinion, however, and I'm certainly not locked into it. But but I think the the first people who should get it are the folks who his most important stay healthy, and the folks who it seems to me most important stay healthy are the folks, the doctors and the nurses and the orderlies, who are who we rely upon to treat the influx into the hospitals, which again, experts are saying are liable to be overwhelmed by the end of the year at current curves, that it, that they have to be kept, kept healthy. And then I think I would go to the folks who we rely on just to live, and that means the person who stocks the shelves at the supermarket, folks like that. And then I would give the old folks in the in the uh, rest homes the 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 third shot um, and maybe uh, and and the people who serve them the people who serve them very important because they go from room to room uh, the vaccine the Pfizer vaccine was jointly created by Pfizer and Germany's BioNTech 95% effective rate reportedly COVID has caused nearly 60,000 deaths in Great Britain. This winter is going to bring even more. That's the that's of course the really great uh, that's of course really great risk is that we are not at the uh, high water mark, but we are the early portion. For instance, we just had Thanksgiving. We haven't yet had Christmas. We haven't yet had New Year's. So it really is a race against time. And I know all of the, of course, all the pharmaceutical companies understand this. Of course, all the public health folks understand this. But this winter, and, and if you go back, in fact, if you go back to March when we were talking about this, and then when the shutdown first started, and you and I were talking about this, and I offered my own prediction. I guess I'd like, I think I probably called them scenarios. Prediction was too strong a word. But the scenario that seemed the most likely scenario to me then was why I, call, I, I called it as people might recall rolling brownouts that I thought we'd have uh, you'd have sort of a, a the, the early surge and everybody have to go hide in their house and then stuff would start leaking out and there was one theory that was sort of the the two surge theory the two thirds two surge excuse me two surge uh, prediction and that was essentially following the Spanish flu it would be big in the spring, calmer in the summer, and then big in the and then big in the winter. The difference here was that the sun doesn't have as big an impact on uh, apparently the sun doesn't have a big impact on this as it does on the Spanish flu. So the summer still mattered. It still followed that pattern a little bit. What I thought was going to be multi- more than two surges, but with the winter, you know, sort of rolling brownouts, we go in and out in and out a little bit. But with the big concern, both of those theories, both of those scenarios anticipated the winter being the scariest one. That's where we're. That's where we are now, and it's timed with everybody being really bored of sitting around now. Everybody, you know, I'm actually ready to go do something different. I'm ready for the blazer season to start and go to a game. Uh, Dad, Wednesday, I want you to know, saw Putin announce the distribution of Russia's vaccine, Sputnik V. Would you take the Russian vaccine? Would you take Putin's cure? Not on your life. Ah, it's you're racist. You're... you're <laughs> The British government says approval came after a rolling review of vaccine, if we use the word rolling, allowed them to access information that came in without cutting corners. A COVID relief package, Dad, might still be far off. A new bill from McConnell, $908 billion bipartisan bill that he rejected on Tuesday. Mitch McConnell, excuse me, presented a new bill in response to that. Democrats called that new bill inadequate and partisan. Steve Mnuchin said the new bill was supported by President Trump. It's $322 billion to businesses, uh, as well as liability protection to businesses. On top of relief bill, Congress has until 11th of December to pass a $1.4 trillion budget. What are some of the dynamics that people should be aware of, Dad, in the budget fight and in the 
coronavirus. You worked on the Hill back in the day. And in the coronavirus stimulus package, relief package, better term for it, a more accurate term for it, the uh, debates and discussions. Well, the, the problem that you have on an issue like this, you have approximately 535 different agendas. And there are some agendas that are closer to each other than other agendas, but they range everywhere from you can have my vote if you give me my bridge or or whatever local project I want. Sure. Uh, some who think that we, we should do nothing unless we do it all. Some who think that we really shouldn't do anything because the Constitution doesn't authorize helping people not starve. It, it, it runs, runs the gamut. But the interesting thing that I have is that at what point does McConnell start to lose the iron fist that he appears to wield over his caucus? And that's, uh, that's something that we're going to get a really good idea of, I think, the next five days. And why do you if, think if, there's if, any if, risk if of deal, that? If, if a deal is not struck in the next five days ain't going to happen before Christmas. As the as people start seeing that there is something that might be done, and bipartisan sounds really good, and three on each side of the aisle sounds really good, and, and the, the Republican senators look at the prospect of going home for Christmas vacation and having to tell folks, well, sorry, we couldn't get a deal because... Mitch didn't want one. Uh, will will enough of them be more concerned about that than than getting his ire that he's going to have to soften up somehow? We'll just see. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer remained optimistic about an agreement between the parties, saying, I'm hopeful in the next days that we'll be able to come to an agreement on a bill that responds to the major crisis, at least in the short term. Democrats are hoping to include funds for state and local governments in the relief bill. Republicans are unlikely and to And the help, the help to of that. state and local governments finish. is critical. The, uh, and those are, those are the big, big disagreements. There are other disagreements. People, yeah, as you said, that'll be um, uh, disagreeing over whether they can get their particular uh, bring it back home, like, let's call it pork project, not necessarily pork project, uh, but those big ones, big labor, big public labor is going to be advocating big state governments and big human beings uh, and bi- and people who are desperately in need of public services uh, are going to be lobbying for, hey, wait a minute, state governments are going to need real help because you have big impacts on state budgets. And then the uh, business lobby is pushing hard for this liability protection. What th- there se- there seems to be a real concern. Uh, it seems to be a real a, a real concern that you if you get rid of that li- if you give that liability protection, that all of a sudden companies who have been reticent to force their employees back to work will not be reticent anymore and that that could trigger another big round of cases now if they're providing the they're providing vaccines to their workers uh, if they're you know spending extra money so they can help get their folks to be safe if they're doing stuff to get them PPE if they're creating systems to keep them protected well then they shouldn't have as much risk about that liability. Now, what's the best argument for that liability protection? What am I missing? <laughs> well, what I think everybody is missing is whether or not you constitutionally can deny a person the right to redress against somebody else's misbehavior. And that's a... I, don't see, I, I haven't seen anybody talk about that, but it strikes me as, as a real question as to whether or not you constitutionally can tell people that if somebody comes up and slaps you in the face, can you pass a law and says that's okay, they can't, you can't sue them? What, what is the difference between that and telling somebody that uh, if you don't want to starve, you better come in, and so you come in and we're not going to do anything to protect you, and you get sick and you get really sick and maybe even you die your your people who who depended upon you have no right to 
redress against the outfit that did that? It, to me, is a question I would be willing to litigate. Lawmakers are finally trying to abolish slavery in the United States. I don't know if you caught this. Technically abolished with the passage of the 13th Amendment of 1865, slavery has technically been legal as a punishment for slavery. Oregon's own Senator Jeff Merkley is the forefront of legislators introduced a resolution on Wednesday to eliminate this allowance. Here's the quote. Continue the process of white power class gravely mistreating black Americans, creating generations of poverty, the breakup of families, and this wave of mass incarceration that still wrestle with today. Make constitutional amendment. Resolution will need a two-thirds majority in the House. Got to be ratified by three-quarters of state legislatures. You catch this, Pop? Yep, I saw that, and it is high time. We got a text in, and thank you, Aileen. It said, I'm very upset that I've lost CBS and other stations as of yesterday. We live in a rural area and cannot get cable and have had DISH for 20 years. Corporations have been allowed to privatize the public TV airwaves. Big buys of hundreds of stations have been allowed by the U.S. government. Nexstar has bought CBS and thousands of local stations. Last night, we lost coin. I am heartsick. How can Nexstar be allowed to do this, especially during a pandemic? What can be done? Have you been tracking Nexstar and CBS Pop? I have not. I have a, some general thoughts, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't follow this story closely enough. Well, I, I have. I have seen the warnings tracing across the bottom of the screen that that was liable to happening, but I have not been following it closely. And that sounds to me like we need to get some expert in to talk about it. Well, I, what, I, what I'm seeing here is that, yeah, DISH Network customers have lost uh, that because of a carriage dispute with the new ownership. There's a contract negotiation. What I remember, and I remember this from when this happened, actually, when I was in the legislature, when, um, uh, was it Comcast and the Blazers and other carriers were uh, were in a in a dispute, and people stopped being able to get Blazer games unless they were unless they got Comcast. Privatization, deregulation, and consolidation. You combine those things all together, and it hoses people. And and you think, well, who's going to hose is fluffy-hearted liberals who want to listen to like I don't know X-ray and Democracy Now. No, it hoses people who also want to like see stuff on CBS. I don't watch CBS, but. It has to. You watch CBS, Dad. Is that what Blue Bloods is on? You watch shows like that. What's What's CBS carry? Is, is that Blue Bloods? Your show is Blue Bloods, right? Is that that, that, that that is what carries Blue Bloods? But Blue Bloods has apparently folded its tent, so all we're getting is Blue NCIS. That's the other thing I was trying to think of. And Survivor, I think that was a CBS property. So be Survivor fans, NCIS Los NCIS Barbados. I don't know what else NCIS is they have anymore. They're not going to be able to get that stuff. It's a it is a big, big deal. Now, here's in, in another universe. You say, what could be done? Well, transport to another universe. I know that's not very helpful, but but there are elements of the idea of transporting to another universe that are helpful. In that other universe, we would have empowered the post office to say, okay, this, this new Internet is coming. It was created with government resources by government scientists. Okay, it wasn't made by Apple. Okay, Bill Gates didn't make this in the Microsoft garage okay it was made by government and since the government made it let's make sure that everybody gets access to it since everybody's money help pay for it and let's make sure that if you're in a rural area you also get access to it and we're going to run it through the post office because it's in the constitution it doesn't it doesn't say in the constitution that there has to be paper okay there has to be a system of mails and now it's email. So we're going to have email systems that everybody's got access to. And that means, just like we had postal roads, we're going to have new postal roads, but that's going to be fiber networks all across the damn country. And that includes rural areas. And yeah, that includes a lot of Republican voters. This isn't some liberal scheme. This is just a, hey, everybody, you ought to be able to get your NCIS. Your NCIS Barbados, you ought to be able to get, even if you live outside Silverton, not just in de- bustling downtown Silverton. And that was that should have been the move back then. And we could still do a move not too dissimilar from that by investing significantly in rural broadband. But now you got 5G, investing in 5G and making sure that and making sure that they're not people aren't hosed by the prices. That is actually something that has meaningful public engagement that recognizes that the Internet is a utility. I still remember this is you want to hear you want to hear power. Here's power. Back in the day, and I didn't realize, I mean, I was, I was a young guy. I, I knew it was important, but I hadn't connected all the dots. 
and uh, and I did this uh, I did this broadband. I, I believed everything I just said back then too, and uh, but I hadn't connect, like I hadn't connected all the dots. And I we put together this broadband council. The most important thing that ended up happening to it is they put in the bills to actually get some federal money to to do some additional broadband development. So actually ended up the bill ended up mattering. The broadband council I think ended up doing much because they ended up packing it with uh, corporate friendly people around the uh, around the council and didn't do much. What it should have done was uh, was start pushing major investment and good on the Obama administration. And had he had a better Congress for a longer period of time, there might have we actually might have had this chance but the uh, but we were starting to talk just starting to talk about what it might be to put some more public money and it was like one of the top people at AT&T came and met with Brian Clem and said hey you've been saying stuff like I don't want you to be saying stuff like that the internet is utility anymore don't say anything like that they like brought, they like flew in the power players to go meet with a co- meet with colleagues to say hey be careful when you're talking about the internet. Don't talk about the internet as utility because they're terrified that what's going to happen to the internet or what happened to the telephones is going to happen to the internet. And that, of course, is what should happen. That it became so critical for everybody to get a telephone. You couldn't live modern life in the United States without a telephone. Okay? You, you, it would be too much of a disparity in democracy and economic power if you didn't have a telephone. And there were big monopolistic practices in telephones as they were common carriers and they were treated as utilities and highly regulated. And it made sure everybody could get it. The Internet, same thing. Who now, how do you operate in the modern world without the Internet? How do you have a chance to find a job? How do you have a chance to list to get somebody else to find a job you want to hire somebody for? How do you have a chance to buy products that particularly in a time that if you're nervous about going to the grocery store, how do you operate? How do you get your NCIS Barbados if you don't have access to the Internet? The Internet should be utility. They're terrified of that because they don't want the regulation. They don't want to have happen in the United States what happened in Northern Europe, which is significant public involvement in the Internet revolution. And by the way, there was significant involvement at the beginning because the government invented the damn thing. And what's important about that is that or what, uh, one thing that's relevant about that is, by the way, Internet access in other countries, including countries poorer than ours, significantly poorer than ours, is way, way better. They don't have all the dead spots. They got better cell service and they got better Internet service because they didn't just rely on companies to do it based on the, high, better, the highest bidder. They made sure everybody could get it. And it's actually been good for their business landscape and it's been good for their democracy landscape and good for the landscape generally. It's been good for Facebook, too, but that's another story. I just have to say Amen. Well, Pop, what do you got next? I, well, I want to talk about election stuff, but before I do that, there's a bunch of international news that I just want a laundry list because I think it's important people aware. Laundry First, list! The, uh, Afghan- in Afghanistan, the supposedly national government, which in Afghanistan is close to an oxymoron, and the Taliban have signed an agreement the first time there's been any signed agreement in 17 years, I have to confess I have doubt that either side really believes that the other side is going to abide by it, but we will see and we, we will hope. The, uh, there, was a, there was an earthquake a couple of weeks ago that affected Turkey and Greece that uh, may be responsible for creating some amity between those two countries, which would certainly be nice. The EU is suing the United Kingdom over their Brexit proposal, which violates the agreement, the over over the Good Friday Accord, dealing with the relationship between Northern Ireland and Ireland, China, China has created the Sesame Credit Score compared to Orwell's 1984, where where you are graded upon how supportive you are of the regime and they're arresting folks who are not getting decent score. That is just so scary. The African elections, nine of ten incumbents are seeking to be reelected. And of course, I would suggest that anytime somebody is an incumbent as a ruler of a country, for more than eight or ten years, you should no longer really consider that a democracy. What's going to happen with North Korea? Are they going to fire a missile? And uh, Australia, Australia had the hottest November, the hottest month in history, and that's November. That, of course, is 
late, early summer, late fall and early summer, with December yet to come and January yet to come, and December is usually down there hotter than November, and January generally hotter than December. Pretty scary. Crystal texted in. Thank you, Crystal. Nice to hear from you. Why, during all the debates, did nobody want to say anything about Bill's dying on Mitch McConnell's desk? Uh, new text uh, from also Joe Pesci, who I wish really include radio station personnel in the essential worker category for prioritized vaccination schedule. You help us all stay sane. Hey, thanks. I appreciate that. But by the way, I, I, so I don't know what we'll do, what we can do. The nice thing about this, the reason we should not be, I mean, I'll take, I'll take a compliment. I'll take all the compliments. The reason we should not be, maybe Pop should be. Pop should be in that first category because, you know, he's not 25 anymore. But I am, uh, I just need to be extra careful, right? And I've been worried that I haven't been careful enough because I've been getting bored, right? I've been getting, ah, well, I haven't gotten this long. Probably won't get it. That's like the one of the dumbest things, one of the most obvious sort of mental errors. Kahneman Tversky could write a book about how stupid it was that I've had that thought in my head. It, well, it's never been really a conscious thought. It's just like, I've been fine. I'm like, what are the people that doesn't get it? I'm like, what are the people that doesn't get it? That is absolutely absurd. All I am is a person who hasn't yet gotten it. <laughs> That's all it is. And I have to say this to myself so that I can maintain vigilance and discipline. Uh, that's tricky. Oh, by the way, another text from Joe Pesci. Uh, this one actually might have been from Martha Stewart. I think that was from Martha Stewart. First was rural electrification before telephones. Thank you very much. I should have said rural electrification first. Getting electricity, rural air, it wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened if it was only done by profit motive. Because if you do it by profit, it's why common carrier rules exist. It's, why, it's one of the reasons utilities exist. It, because, you know, listen, we don't only want, because otherwise you'd only do it in city centers. Everybody has been where you've had sort of a, I don't know, the best cell, you know, sort of a cell dead spot. A friend of mine calls them cell phone ghettos. And what they mean is areas where cell phones don't have service. Well, that's not, that is done with profit motive in mind. So, yeah, thanks for rural electrification. Uh, but well, the, one of the things, one of the things that we really need to look for every opportunity we can when discussing with our rural brethren and sistren. The who who scream, of course, who have bought the bought into the Kool Aid about all the threats of socialism, is the REAs and the RFD, the Rural Federal Delivery, which, by just about any definition of socialism, qualify. The, the those folks who benefit because of the Bonneville Power Administration, the folks who so much benefit because of the Tennessee Valley Authority. What what would your what would your farm be like if you had no electricity, if you had no telephone, if you had no mail delivery? Yes, please. No, this was my big in fact, which one was it? Was it uh where was I when I did this? Was it Colorado? forget what state. No, it was Idaho. It was Idaho? Anyway, I went and spoke to their, uh, at, at their, I think, Jefferson Jackson dinner, you know, sort of the big, big Democratic Party fundraiser there. And, and I laid out my thoughts of a rural economic development agenda, something that I thought would be one of the major things that ought to be pushed. And I even, and I thought the Democratic Party should push it, but even if we move to a, if we move to a, a sortition world, which I would like to move to, or if we move to a, uh, uh, a star voting, a ranked choice voting world, which I think we should move to. Uh, it wouldn't have to be the ambit of only a single party, but it should be the ambit of somewhat of the pro-democracy forces, not just the pro-consolidation of wealth forces. And to make sure that, let's be real clear, who's getting ho- totally hosed by Uber consolidation of wealth, and I use Uber on purpose? People are getting totally hosed by it, include a bunch of whiteies in rural areas. They're getting totally hosed because wealth is concentrating in concentrated areas. Now, that might, might be The Triumph of the City, which is a, an excellent book, is becoming almost the tyranny of the city. And that's not to knock city-dwelling voters who are also doing right now paying for a lot of the services that rural people are getting. The social contract is getting all screwed up. But a rural economic development agenda that would include rural broadband, that would include uh, the uh, uh, include solar power, would include the uh, include efforts in water in in water savings, uh, so that we start preparing ourselves for a climate change world. I have to go back and look at all my points, but I was pretty excited. I thought it was pretty smart. Uh, 
the we got another another text in and oh and to this one i got another example for you why is it a myth that the private sector is better and more efficient than the public sector? Big companies do not care about access. Small companies often give shoddy work and no accountability, while public workers seem dedicated, caring, and competent. The worst thing is trying to find a good contractor that won't rip you off. Okay, this should be its own show. I genuinely believe this should be its own show of offering examples of sort of the, the, the sort of comparing, like where is the private sector better and where is the public sector better? Because there has been a propagandistic effort over decades, this idea that if government does it, it's bad. If a public thing does it, it's bad. Now, to be clear, sometimes that's true. California, DMV lines really suck. I hate it. But in Oregon, the DMV is pretty good. It's not a matter of government versus not government. It's often a matter of which institution is being better run versus which institution is being worse run. And sometimes it's where does government make sense and where does it not make sense. That is a very sensible conversation to have. We should not approach that conversation as ideologues, either assuming that tax and transfer or broad regulation or uh, centralized control should be the answer, nor assuming that it's not. We should do it based on data. We should do it based on evaluation, actually trying it out and seeing what works. But I'll give you a couple examples. Dad, can you think of the example I'm thinking of? Because it has to do with mail delivery. You don't have to guess if you don't want to, but I want to give you a chance to talk because I think you have the same recognition that I have. Well, I already mentioned the effect of the RFD. So Pop and I federal delivery. Pop and I live in adjacent units. Okay, we have different addresses, but we live in adjacent units. I know it's funny, and sometimes things get delivered to the wrong door. The different addresses, but people get things get somewhat frequently delivered to the wrong door. But you know who never delivers to the wrong door? The post office. They get it right every time. Amazon, UPS, they're always screwed up. All is just screw, not every time, but they screw up frequently. The postal service never screws up; they get it right every single time. I'll give you another example. This is my favorite one because it surprised me the most. And again, I come up with examples of how the like how the private sector is done. I, I would say that very often the private sector does aesthetics really well. Not always, but sometimes. The private sector has done all sorts of things really well. And another thing I like about, as I like institutions that have the ability to innovate at the fringe, do new stuff. Anytime there's too much money in a system, anytime there's too much scale in a system, there is a worry that that system will have its gears ground and have a hard time of being nimble and doing new things uh, and have a hard time of maintaining sort of esprit de corps, any sort of things when things get too large. So I have, I have, that, I have that concern generally. But here's one I like. And I guess it's a post office one again. But do you know, I now have given it away. Do you know, I, had a, I knew somebody who uh, worked at the U.S. Gemological Society. They mailed diamonds. They had to ship diamonds to people. And not just diamonds, also rubies and sapphires and emeralds. And you know what they used? They, they used could, the post office. They could use any service in the world. They could use DHLs, very exotic. They could use FedEx. They could use UPS. They could probably use a pony if they wanted to use a pony and express it that way. What they used was plain paper U.S. mail. Plain paper U.S. mail. U.S. Gemological Society. That's what got... When the mail doesn't... When you say, oh, I mailed it, didn't get there. Oh, stupid post office. You know why that exists? Because a bunch of people have been lying about the post office because they didn't mail their darn stuff. Oh, no, it's post office. No, no, no. Every time I... I every time something got lost in the mail, because I lost it. It's not because I actually got lost in the mail. It's because, like, I don't know, I forgot to change my address or I, like, put it in a stack somewhere or mail got stolen out of my box, which used to happen with too much frequency. But it wasn't because the postal worker got it wrong. Come on. All right. I'll tick off. The, uh, calm down a little bit. We got uh, uh, thank you. Uh, if you can get widened on to address this, I'd greatly appreciate it. Oh, this about the Dish Network thing and the CBS thing. Yeah, that really got us on a tangent, didn't it? I, hopefully it was useful when I enjoyed that topic. I hope other people did. Dad, you want to talk about election news. Trump has suggested he's going to run again in 2024. Are you going to vote for him? <laughs> I doubt that he will run again. Uh, I wonder if he will even survive for four years with his diet, <laughs> the diet that he follows. But, but what I am more curious about, and I think maybe we should have some sort of a, a pot that everybody tosses into but making their estimate is will Bill Barr last 48 more days? Uh, and people are wondering, why did he speak up? And I have my own thoughts about why he finally spoke up and said that he did not see any evidence of 
sufficient fraud to overturn the election, and then hastily added, but but we'll keep looking, apparently, to not completely lose his cachet with the president. The reports are that there was a, a somewhat hostile meeting between the two of them yesterday, but uh, so but two questions: Will he last? But more: Why did he decide to speak up? That's a good what question. are your thoughts on those? That's a really good question. I, I, all right. There are a couple. Tr- the hope for Bill Barr, for all those people, and I disagreed with him a lot. Remember when he was, yeah, he got appointed, and there are all these, uh, all these mainstream media pundits. That's pretty funny. That's like, that's like standard radio talk. Mainstream media pundits. All these mainstream media pundits, who are like, oh. Finally, an adult. This is the this is the kind of attorney general we need. And the reason was they'd been to cocktail parties with him. The reason was he was a Manhattanite. The reason was he was a denizen of D.C. He was somebody who lived above the world in higher buildings and in fancier rooms. And he worked for the biggest law firms. And he had friends in the biggest law firms. And therefore, he must be cool. It reminds me of the time I went to my law school reunion. And uh, and Rod Rosenstein, Rod Rosenstein was the speaker. And the dean was interviewing him. Rod Rosenstein gave a speech, and the dean interviewed him, and he didn't ask him a hard question. And the whole thing was his love fest about how, how law and order is above politics, and how Rod Rosenstein was making sure that the rule of law that was going to see to and oversee the Department of Justice and make sure that uh, the politics did not invade uh, the Donald Trump administration. And it was, in retrospect, if you look what Rod Rosenstein was up to, it is absolute poppycock. What offended me was... Absolute poppycock. What, what offended me, though, was not that Rod Rosenstein... It's Rosenstein, yeah? Uh, yes. It was not that he gave that speech. I knew that's a speech he would give. What offended me was not only that the dean did not call him to question, although I know deans in previous generations might well have done so, because I know, well, he's sort of a guest, and you treat the guests nice. And it wasn't only at the classmates of mine, and, you know, they do it at 10-year intervals, so there's not only my classmates, but 10 years older and 10 years older. And it was not only my Harvard Law School mates sitting there who also just sat on their hands and said, oh, yes, 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 we are all part of this club. We are all part of this same establishment. We are all part of this thing that is, you know, uh, values law over politics. I'm also upset at myself because I said nothing. Because I didn't stand up and shout, what are you talking about? Democracy is under attack and it's being purchased and profited after. And all of us are in on the joke and all of us are smart enough and have enough privilege we should be doing something about it. Instead, what we're doing is applauding this clown. I didn't say anything either. And I was feeling weak. I was feeling weak because I've been under attack too many times over the last 10 years. And I've internalized too much of that. And I've silenced myself to too great a degree. And I felt too much shame. But I was ashamed of myself because I didn't say anything either. Now, I would have had to be very, very rude to do it. The dean just would have had to do his job a little bit better. And somebody who'd asked, who had been in the question preparation room would have just had to do their job a little bit better. But part of it, I think, that Bill Barr, I tried to return a little bit better to your question, Bob, that, uh, that when Bill Barr was hired, the, the justification was partly that our establishment was broken. And that, that recognition, that is not a partisan recognition. The people who elected Donald Trump to the White House understand that too. The establishment is broken. They know, oh, this guy's somebody, he's going to drain the swamp. He's going to shake that up. They share that sense. They are n- not everybody is an enemy just because you vote for different candidates. There are certain things that we have a shared human sense of. And one of the shared human sense we have is that something's got to change. We got to fix this thing. And that doesn't mean we got to blow up the best stuff and turn it all to rubble, but we got to fix this thing. But when, but the good news, the, the, where the people, the instinct of the Bill Barr apologist early on was, well, he's not a Trump loyalist. There's nothing to suggest in his background that he is a Trump loyalist. He's just a Republican loyalist. And so one way of answering your question, a shorter way, Dad, is say, well, Bill Barr is a Republican loyalist. He is a, he is a royalist. His paper he wrote as a kid was essentially about, you know, he's a unitary executive guy, 
right? He's a guy that believes that the... He believes we should have had a king. Borderline, right? Yeah, he's an Alexander Hamiltonian, and, and I'm, not a, I'm not a fan of the musical. I know that is an unpopular view. Uh, the, uh, and I think that part of it is, is, well, Donald Trump's not really the king of the Republican Party anymore. And so Bill Barr now has permission. But the other is, is the guy probably has conflicting motivations because he still is a lawyer as a client. His client's supposed to be the American people, but he's been treating it as if the president himself is the client. But also he's got to think about what he's going to do next. And I think that's a lot of it. That's right. the shortest answer, right? It's just and like, I think it's just plain as he can he spoke up because he realized that the president really is not going to be the president anymore. And he needed to start repairing his reputation between the intelligent people in the circles in which he moves. Yeah. I got to give another little, I did mention that, uh, that at a White House event Tuesday night, Trump reportedly said to attendees, we're going to try to do another four years. Otherwise, I'll see you in four years. Uh, despite the support of any evidence, Trump's election defense fund has raised $170 million from supporters. That's, almost, that's more than it used to take to run for president. And by used to, I mean not that long ago. Let me look up how much Bill Clinton spent. That, that, that's 170 right? 170 Yeah. And, and that, of course, explains people are saying, well, look, look at all the, the failures that he's had going to court. So far, the, the lawsuit result is 39 to 1, and the only, one he, the only lawsuit that he won was to require letting poll watchers move 12 feet, no, 14 feet closer to the, to the action. But that's not, that's not what it's all about. It's all about raising these huge amounts of money it's just graft. that he will be able to use just about any way he wants. It's just graft. Well, we're talking about the lawsuits. But hold on, Dan. i got to talk about the money. Before the lawsuits, i got to talk about the money. Okay, go for it. Uh, the, uh, this is an, a story from October. It's Washington Post from back in 1995, October of 1995. So uh, that Clinton promised his own government that in exchange for federal campaign funds, he would spend no more than the legal limit of $37 million during the, during the upcoming 1996 primary election campaign. Uh, but even as he signed the vow, which ultimately did him $13 million, uh, Clinton had hosted an intimate coffee for major donors to the Democratic National Committee, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So now, then, they, then it goes on to say they were going to spend an extra $44 million. So they were talking about a presidential race in the ballpark, and not that long ago, 20 years ago, how, how many years ago was that? 24 years ago, of, of $50 million for the whole presidential campaign. Right now, the, uh, they've, in just weeks, they've raised $170 million. For uh, to to on this fake graph of the president, go ahead with what you're going to say. Well, that's that's the whole point of it. They're, they're, I get emails from Trump. I get emails from Trump Jr. I get emails from just all kinds of folks, all saying you've got to contribute the money so that we can overcome this fake election. And, of course, that means that they have to convince people that there is a fake election, which is very, very dangerous. You have people like the lawyer Joe DeGeneva saying, shoot, that Chris Krebs should be taken out and done and shot. And I think that there really ought to be some sanctions by the Bar Association of whatever Bar Association he is a member. I am... I am just hoping that some that there will be one case, one of the 39 cases that they've lost, that they get to the Supreme Court, because I really do believe, and this may be this may be a forlorn hope that I have, but I really do believe that there would be a nine to zero ruling from the Supreme Court, and that could go take us at least a little bit in the direction of helping people realize how bamboozled they have been about all the claims of phonies. But one of the things, I, there's a lot of talk about pardons. Who, who's DDT going to pardon? Is he going to pardon himself? And Ivanka put out a tweet uh, saying that there were investigations of her was just all political, which of course is, I think, her realizing she needs to start tainting the jury pool but the big question is, what should the Biden administration do about investigating and potentially prosecuting crimes committed 
by Trump and his inner circle. And again, I have a thought on it, but I'd be interested in in hearing your yeah. View that's that's yet another I rant. I want to hold. I want to hold that for Monday. Uh, if you if you want to offer yours, feel free. But I've I've ranted plenty. Well, uh, what I believe is that when Biden is at, when Biden is asked in the, the joint interview that he and Kamala Harris are going to have on, uh, I believe on CNN, I think it's tonight, tonight or tomorrow night. Anyway, when he's asked about that, I think what he should say is, I do not believe that the President of the United States should tell the Department of Justice who they should investigate and who they should prosecute. And by the same token, I do not think that the president should tell the Department of Justice who they should not investigate and not prosecute. And I will leave that up to the Department of Justice and the the lawyers there who believe in the Constitution to go wherever the facts lead them. And that's all I'm going to say about it. And so the word is out there, Southern District of New York, if you've got evidence, investigate. Washington, D.C., if you've got evidence, investigate. I think that's that's what ought to happen. And if a case is brought, it should only be brought because there is overwhelming evidence of wrongdoing. Yeah, but if there is overwhelming evidence of wrongdoing, by golly, they ought to prosecute. I think you're absolutely right. I would just pile on by saying what I would probably add if I were the president's speech writer is saying that we are not here to punish political opponents. But we are also want to make sure we're not using politics as a shield from enforcing the most important laws that we have. And I would, I would say I don't want Maine Justice involved in this. I would go further than that. I'd say I don't want Maine Justice uh, to uh, be involved in prosecuting uh, for, the mo- you know, for the most part, or at least I would not. I, I would be more reticent about that. I'd want to think about that more, but I'd be more reticent about that. But I'd be particularly careful about either directing or prohibiting the, uh, the uh, local U.S. attorneys, right, Southern District of New York primarily, from investigating or prosecuting what they needed to investigate or prosecute. But, Dad, there's some local stories we've got to get to. Uh, and the... Uh, Governor's budget? Well, I think a really big question is what should be done with the prison in in North Bend and the prison in Lakeview where the local folks are saying, please don't close this prison because it's really important to our local economy. Just give them the money. The question is, 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 it, is it sensible from the standpoint of the budget? That, that's, that's a big one. Is, 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 I'm going to go to an extreme, and it's mostly be provocative to recognize this, but, the, but this is one of the reasons why I think university, university, universal basic income is not absurd. Because what we're saying is, hey, listen, there's government money going to our town. It's the same thing with military bases. Please keep a prison because we need this money going to our town. Please keep this military base, even though we're not in wartime, or if we are, it's not a wartime that impacts blank military base. Please do it because otherwise our town's going to go away. If instead we say, well, just, just hand them the money. Instead of handing the money to bricks and mortar to imprison people and maybe do so in a racially biased way, just give them the money. And if we can, and that's part of my, that's part of my response. Here's another one, though, Dad. Uh, the well, actually, anything else on the budget? On the budget, I'll say one. There is, I think, 135 million dollars in there for the employment department computer system. The same one. There have been at least two heads of the employment department, employment division, who lost their jobs because of that computer system. And promises a long time ago, well before COVID, they were going to replace it. It's really hard. I think I explained this before. It's really hard actually to get money in the budget and keep that money in the budget for computer systems because the people want to get the money. And people need money, right? It's like, well, that's a computer system. What about the people? I should get the money. I'm a, I'm a public worker. you got to make sure we actually invest in services. Uh, I, I'm actually a student in school. I want to make sure that we don't have too big a class sizes. These things are all totally legitimate. The computer systems, what do they have, like Oracle? That's their lobbyist. So computer systems are very hard to invest in very often. Uh, and uh, and often when you do, they break, and then everybody loses their damn job. So, yeah, that's another one I'll I'll, uh, I'll flag. It's a hobby horse of mine. Dad, here's one I want to say, though. Not the budget. Is there something else on the budget you really need to say? Nope. 
Did you see the Rose City Downtown Collective? You see Jim Mark, the head of Melvin Mark. There's a reason they have the same last name. Who organized a bunch of business leaders, not counting most uh, most of the young uh, progressive business leaders and not counting the tech businesses, but sort of the landlord kind of businesses together to criticize the uh, to criticize the city council and say, well, you got to you got to clean up downtown. The protesters are ruining everything. And I don't know if you saw the interchange, but I, I got to give a shout out to Nick Blosser. I got to give a shout out to Nick Blosser, who was chief of staff to the governor, now working with the Biden transition team and married to uh, Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kofori. But I got to give a shout out to Nick Blosser because in the, this was not a public thing. He was not doing this for show, except to the degree that you know when you work for the governor, all your emails are subject to a public records request. And he got in a heated exchange with Melvin Mark, who was complaining about uh, the governor not condemning violence in, uh, by protesters and not doing enough to protect businesses downtown. And he said, first of all, you're wrong. She did condemn vandalism. Uh, but let's not equate these things. There's a real thing going on here. People have been harmed for a lot of years. And let's make and I, I would ask you to be as publicly energized about that social justice reality as you are about property damage. And the fact that Nick Blosser is doing that in the I won't I'm not willing to say the privacy of that communication because it's subject to a public records request. He knows that. Uh, but I still I still got to give that shout out to Nick Blosser. Uh, Dad, yeah, we talked about we talked about covid uh, and we uh, we talked about the well Kellogg Bowl has closed. I don't know if you saw that. Uh and the uh, and and Travis Stovall, we've got a, now a new mayor, Gresham Pop. You see that that got certified? Oh, we finally do. What what was the margin? You want to guess? Well, it was less than hundred, I think. Thirteen. <laughs> oh my gosh! It's thirteen. I mean, think about 13. this. Thirteen. Thirteen votes. I mean, that's like one more canvas day for all all the wonderful people out there who are spending their time. And and you know, I don't know if you know this, but I was saying one of the reasons why Trump got closer. And why Democrats didn't win the Senate? Because and his his folks went out and risk risked uh, contaminating. His folks were watching Fox and News and thought on those doors they knocked yeah. by knocking on doors, and and the Democrats abided by the COVID rules. This is the first. This is the first election where Democrats got outfielded, where their where their door knocking effort was vastly uh, outweighed, outnumbered outflanked by the Republican canvassing effort. But for all you wonderful people who are out there and volunteer for the candidates you care about, who volunteer for the environmental organizations, the choice organizations, the social justice organizations, the labor organizations that uh, fight for democracy, for all of you good people who do that, know that this is the kind of race you do it for. Because on your one day, and you know, you might not flip 13 votes in one day, but if you do it two days, you got good odds. And if you're Joe Smith and you had his ability to persuade people to doorstep and to motivate people to do right by democracy, I tell you, you're worth 13 votes. And if you get a handful of friends together, you're definitely worth 13 votes. And now, of course, Eddie Morales is still on the Gresham City Council. Uh, Travis Stovall, of course, now, though, has, his fir- has launched his electoral political career. Uh, both of them will be rumors, rumored as candidates for Congress uh, when Earl, if Blumenauer ever retires, if he is not, if he does not live forever, uh, and all of that based on, and Eddie Morales will have a harder time in that race. All of that based on thirteen votes, just cast or not cast. That was. Real, I, I am reminded. I am reminded of a time when I went with the bus project down to Jackson County to canvas. For the Senate, for the state Senate candidate, and at the end of the day, I was confident that I that I could point to six people whose votes I had changed. There might be many more than that, but there were six that I just knew I had changed their votes, and there were close to a hundred of us who had gone down. And I multiplied that; that meant close to six hundred votes. And that was substantially more than the margin that turned out. Yeah, Jeff. Same story for Jeff Barker. And I don't think people, are, most people, are as effective as you. But if they were worth, you know, on average two or three, uh, then the margin of Jeff Barker's race, who won by was it forty-eight votes, forty-six votes, forty-four votes? I used to know that yep. number by heart. Uh, the uh, that, it, that it's sort of unassailable, not even sort of. Well, Dad, I think it is time. Karen Spencer is waiting patiently. I think it is time for a straw in the wind. 
And I have three straws in the wind. It's a whole field of straws. Like a straw Several straws in, in the, the wind. wind. First straw cruise ship. The first cruise ship uh, is being sold for scrap because of what's happening to the cruise business. The second one is the Althea Spencer Miller, a universal a Methodist, United Methodist pastor, has, with other people, created the Liberation Methodist Connection, connection spelled with an X, for progressive United Methodists. So they're breaking away where they're going to emphasize action, not doctrine. But last, big straw in the wind, the National Review blasted DDT for what he's doing in about election fraud. And that is a big straw in the wind. Indeed, Dad, indeed. Well, we did it one more time. We did it again. Love you, lad. Love you, Dad.